0: Welcome everyone for week four. We'll have small groups tonight. If you didn't already get your name tag, maybe right before the small groups you can get it. And it's nice to remember ahead of time to get a name tag on the nights, especially the nights that we have small groups. But even any night it's nice. And I think we might even have the equipment to make your own name tag if you don't have a permanent one. Maybe notice that Anagarika Michelle one of the venerable ones now has joined us tonight. Michelle, of course, was a longtime leader in the community and last May or early June left to join some bhikkhunis in California, Ayatataloka and two other bhikkhunis. And uh, then in September took her the first stage of ordination called Anagarika. So she's practicing now as a celibate. Ten or eight precept in Thailand, they call them mechi. Is it? Yeah. But uh, where does the word anagark come from? Yeah. So tonight, at least, Michelle is. uh, I mean, and this is really how the monastic community is set up for us lay folks. They're sort of the walking, moving, talking example of renunciation. And tonight, you know, we're looking at the second noble truth, craving, understanding the origin of suffering and abandoning of craving. And when we see somebody who's sort of taking on in ways, what we might call a radical lifestyle, you know, it sort of makes it more up and right in front for us. And, um, really hoping that as the years go by, we of course don't know how things will unfold for Michelle, but assuming that she continues to pursue this homeless life as a, uh, bhikkhuni, eventually ordaining as Bakuni, bhikkhuni, um, it'd be nice to continue our relationship over the years and as a community to invite her back so we can be re-inspired and develop that relationship and actually see what the practice, what can happen in the practice, because she is becoming a professional mindfulness practitioner. (laughs) And so we'll see what kind of results she gets. Just to put a little pressure on. We were talking earlier. No, really, because every single day, um, Michelle and the other nuns, they receive their food. Michelle was saying how when... uh, you know, as long as you're, this is one of her teachers told her, as long as you're not an arhat, there should be a little funny feeling getting food, because you you can't keep food, so you have to be offered food every day, the nuns do. And uh, it's sort of like, I mean, we should all feel this way, because our food is coming to us too, whether you get a salary, or you're on some government stipend, or whatever it might be, as long as we're alive, we're being fed, and we should feel some obligation to do something beautiful with our lives. And especially it's symbolically made so obvious for the nuns because they have to go out every day and receive not just their food, but their robes and all the support because they don't own anything. So uh, looking forward to this. And maybe some of you will want to go out for her novice ordination September 27th, a Sunday coming up soon. So let us know. Let the office know and maybe there will be a group of people who are interested in going out. Um, And I told Michelle that the community, we all would like to provide the requisites. It's considered a real good deal to support the life of a monastic because then that means we're participating. We get to receive some of the blessing of what in Buddhism sometimes we call the holy life. So we'll be purchasing the robes and her bowl and a few other things that they can own. Spoons, (laughs) wooden spoon, (laughs) not too much else. (laughs) Maybe a monastic bag, a few few other things. So uh, let us know if you're interested in that. And the other thing that we're hoping that somebody might want to do, just anybody who's interested in keeping that connection alive between the bhikkhunis and common ground, let me know. But it would be nice, one of the things, one of the ways some of you who have more um, space in your life, you might want to go out for two or more weeks, a couple months even, and be the steward for the nuns because they need lay people to come at least for two weeks, uh, stint, or longer of course, And just do some of the practical things. But you get to join the Manasseh community as a layperson for that period of time. So if anybody's interested uh, in making a poster that we can have up at Common Ground so that as people who have some flexibility see the poster, oh, I can do that. And they can contact either Michelle or some of the other bhikkhunis and uh, make the arrangements to get out there at a time that works for them and support them for a few weeks and then come back, and your experience in the community will all benefit from that relationship. Some of you, I I don't know if anybody in this room, I know Jeff's been up there a lot, but people have spent time up at Arrow River, which is a little bit more simple. It's more of a hermitage, more of a recluse of Ajahn Pranadamo than a kind of more uh, monastic sangha or community. But still, you get the flavor supporting that you you come back a changed person, so uh, if you're interested in making that poster and helping us maintain the relationship, uh, then please let me know. Anything else we should say? oh, and I uh, Michelle did leave some flyers out uh, in the lobby on the left side, the way I'm facing, and there's a bull if you'd like to. Support the monastery to feed them, clothe them, pay for eyeglasses, help them buy a new Vihara. They just have a space that they're renting now, but they're going to need to buy a place in town. So, any little bit, it just, again, it's just a way for us lay people to feel like we're part of this very ancient and beautiful tradition of practicing renunciation and the best or the most suitable conditions where um, we purposefully strip away all the ground in our lives as best we can. I mean, that's the monastic, um, that's sort of the underlying principle is to take away the ground and you're literally dependent on, on, for everything on others. And so you're really directly, immediately practicing renunciation. You know, you don't even look like the rest of the people in the society. And it's not just now it looks strange. It looks strange at the time of the Buddha, too. That was the whole point, right? It's not that, oh, this is a, something that's out of place these days. No, that was the whole point, to stand out like I'm not living the home, the home, a home life, the lay life. I'm doing something different. Anything else you want to add, Michelle? Okay, We had such a beautiful program yesterday for about 30 community members. Some of you were there where um, we served Michelle lunch after the morning program and then she stayed around for quite a long time answering questions and sharing about her life. It was really beautiful. And hopefully, you can never know, but hopefully it's something that will happen annually or something like that. So that's our aspiration at least. Good, so maybe if she has energy, she'll be around a little bit after the program tonight. People can connect. So we're looking at, now we're moving into the second noble truth and done our best in our life as a practitioner to be, as um, this well-known Zen teacher, Reb Anderson says, right in the downtown of Dukkha. <laughs> I know people, some of my good friends, whose names will go unnamed, who do not like to be in the downtown of any place, (laughs) like a city, right? And we can do that a lot. We can spend, even those of us who've done a lot of practice, there are all kinds of ways we justify not being in the downtown of suffering. And it's okay, especially if you know that that's what you're doing, but what's not okay is when we don't know that that's what we're doing because it becomes a habit, holding on to ground, holding on to what's pleasant. And uh, I remember reading somewhere that Ajahn Sushito, this uh, uh, English monk in the Thai forest tradition, you know, he talks about how clinging is a natural function of the body. You see this in little children, you know, they just, that, that instinct to grab a hold and hold tight. But what happens is that natural habit of holding, which is functional, if we're not aware of it, it becomes basically becomes the character of the mind. The thinking mind begins to orient around holding, grasping, as if that strategy can be generalized as that's the way You know, that's the way to get through life. Find something to hold tight to. And of course, it just makes us tight. Holding on is suffering. Having to hold on. It's not so much holding is suffering, but being dependent on holding is suffering. Sharon, would you uh, lower the fan speed to the middle? It's the third one on the bottom. And that's the thing on the side. Nope third one over from the left, the third one over, and you, there's a little slide thing in the, on the side of the flapper. Yeah, you got it. He says, like desire, clinging is a function of a natural bodily life. Babies do it with good reason. But the unknowing recreates that as a compulsive mental activity. And clinging to the wrong things is, frustrate, is a frustrating, stressful, and dangerous experience. And we have that habit of, like we go home, we want something to grasp, especially if no one's around, it really stands out. What am I going to absorb into? Who am I going to be? Even like when we walk into a crowd of people, do you notice like, who, what activity, what conversation am I going to absorb into? Where am I going to find my ground? So we want to notice how this grasping tendency has become institutionalized in the mind. Always looking for something to hold to. So the Buddha says there is a cause, it should be abandoned, it has been abandoned. These are the three insights in the second noble truth. And the Buddha says that which is the exhaustion of lust, of hate, and of delusion is called Nibbana. And this, I like this word exhaustion that gets used, gets translated, I'm not sure what the Pali word is, but there's, we get tired. You know, one of the things as we pay more attention in life, this need for ground, this need to hold to something, to absorb into something, to have some ground for self, it just gets exhausting. And it just dawns in the mind like, what if, what if, what if we don't feed that beast, give it more ground? What if were the heart, the mind is willing to be groundless, to not cling, not grasp? This is from Tony Packer, a wonderful teacher. Um, she started as a Zen practitioner and a Zen teacher, and then didn't want to be confined by any tradition. Sometimes people call her an awareness teacher. She's dead now. Is she dead? She's dead, yeah. (laughs) I had a doubt. What is this work? The essence is to come upon a profound kind of listening and openness that reveals the intense power and momentum of our human conditioning. How we are caught up and attached to ideas about ourselves and each other and how violently we defend these ideas. It's that holding. Not just individually but collectively which is why it's so hard to go beyond these habits because even if we have that inkling start getting exhausted our habit gets renewed just being around each other. I mean, it's possible now that some of you are grasping the idea of joining Michelle. (laughs) There's a waiting list, I hear. (laughs) Because, you know, we see somebody who maybe has found the way out of the sort of feeling of hell that we experience sometimes in our lives and we grasp, we think the way is to grasp. And sometimes grasping is the way to let go. You know, hold this and let go of that. But we have to really be on the lookout. Same with just wanting a nice experience of calm in our meditation. So not just individually, but collectively, Tony Packer says. And how this defense keeps us isolated from each other and from ourselves. Right? Always looking for ground, looking for something to hold to, is what separates ourselves from ourselves and from each other. The other aspect of this listening is is to come upon an inner and outer silence, stillness, spaciousness, in which there is no sense of separation or limitation outside or inside. So this deep habit, you know, that gets uncovered in these insights around the second noble truth, there is a cause, it should be abandoned, it has been abandoned. Right? There is a cause, attachment to desire. It's not the holding, it's the unknowing of the holding. It's the unconscious habit, identification with holding, the reflexive holding. That's our stance. That's our way of being, to hold. So Ajahn Sumedho says, it's not, Desire, it's the attachment to desire. Because like Ajahn Sushito says, holding is just a—you know built into the system to hold. There's nothing inherently wrong with holding. It's when the mind, the thinking mind, let's say, to make it simple, the thinking mind constructs this self that's all about holding and dependent on having something to hold to always looking for something better to hold to. So even when we have a lot, like we see these people who have so much power, so much wealth, so much privilege, so much beauty, we're those people, relatively speaking, actually. And what do we do? We want something better to hold to. Even though in a relative sense we have so much already, we want something more to hold to. Jack Cornfield and others—they call this habit, because it—it that habit then, it has a life of its own. It's really coherent. I mean, there's an intelligence to this habit. Some of you were here Friday night for the wonderful talk by Anam Thupten, this Tibetan teacher who teaches a lot in some of the Vipassana centers around. Um, Just a beautiful, wise presence. Some of you were on his retreat over the weekend. Um, But he talked about how these patterns of wanting something to hold to, attachment to desire, they're brilliant, I think was the word he used. And that he talked about his practice. And here's somebody who practiced for many, many years as a monk, I think a couple decades in the monasteries. Um, before he left Tibet, and then as a seventeen-year-old walking across the mountains, and then in the monasteries in England and uh, India for a while before coming to the West, and um, now he's a lay person, but a, a Rinpoche, a, a well-known Dharma teacher. Um, but just seeing, like, clearly, his whole practice now is is respecting. And being, sounded like being in awe of and taking it up as its practice to understand the brilliance of this impersonal habit to hold. To be tight. Because that's that body of fear. It's, it's sort of been laid down. It's like, has a deep imprint in the body and mind. And so it doesn't take much to activate this whole system. And when the system, that coherent, brilliant, system of holding gets activated, it just feels so personal. So do not be ashamed if life if your experience as a human being feels personal because that's what it feels like. It feels personal. but we can learn that that very personal feeling is just a feeling. That's what we were doing in the sit tonight you know we you know initially, Follow the Buddhist teachings, which before, generally speaking, before you do wisdom practice, vipassana or inside practice, you take some time, maybe 20 years if you're fortunate, or maybe like we did, 10 or 15 minutes, and we develop calm, right by paying attention to that which is not agitating. So we don't think about like season four of Game of Thrones or or to do list or something. We don't think about that. We think about something we pay attention to something neutral, like the breath coming in and the breath going out. And then the whole that holistic experience of breath. So aware of the breath but not excluding anything. So whole body awareness breathing in. And noticing the healing effect, the calming effect. See, these objects of awareness don't agitate the mind. They settle the mind. And then we notice joy, that lightness, that flow, that movement. And then we notice that more resonant ease. And then from that place of relative steadiness and calm and ease and joy and peace, then we practice being with feeling which is there with every experience, as I said in the guided meditation, without being, we practice not being confused by feeling, the way the moment feels. Because it's the confusion or the belief, basically, the view that feeling is personal. So therefore, we should personally react to pleasant feeling by grasping and personally react to unpleasant feeling by grasping getting away, and personally react to neutral feeling by grasping the idea that it's not important. So with any feeling, the habit, the body imprint, that body of fear that wants to hold, it's going to find some way to grasp, to hold, no matter the feeling, even really pleasant feelings. Oh, I don't want this to end. how could this be better? How could I make this last? We do that even in really good sits. You have to learn that all the way through that in order to calm down, you need a lot of insight about not grasping the pleasant qualities that happen when the mind starts to settle down. To be interested, to be intimate, but not to grasp. In order for the deeper settling, we can't, want the deeper settling to happen. We can't want it to be my ground that I get to hold because it won't happen. And some of you are smiling because you know you've had this dance probably tens of thousands of times where it's settling and we personalize it and we personally grasp and it goes away and we feel personally betrayed and we grasp that idea and then it really goes away, and then we get have a lot of doubt, and we grasp that, and then it's nowhere, anywhere close, you know. And then hopefully, we remember, oh, this is suffering. I'm told to sit right in the downtown of that, not to be afraid of it, and then things begin to settle down. It's the same with panic attacks. I, you know, talk to people sometimes who have this habit or this tendency in their mind to have panic attacks. I mean, we all do to some degree. Some people, it's pretty pervasive, that that tendency for that energy to build. And then the mind relates to that energy in a way that amplifies it. And then it relates to that energy in a way that amplifies it. And pretty soon, it's like something's going to explode. And then it, it at some point, will explode. And you, hopefully you're conscious that you go out the other end so that slowly you're not as afraid of it. And then eventually we learn the move, which is as we catch ourselves amplifying the situation by holding tighter, we say, oh, yes, yes, it's like this. So we don't personalize the grasping, we say yes to it, we relax with it. And so this is what we can talk about in the small groups tonight, And we'll go into it in the next two weeks. So this is just the beginning. So it's okay to have whatever understanding you have. But we all have this deep imprint to hold. And we're holding to all kinds of things, like what we see, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, what we think. Basically, whatever experience, any aspect of experience we can cling to. We cling to feeling, we cling to perception, we cling to our thoughts and intentions, we cling to the body. So, to share that, and to um, maybe I'll just end with this basic model, which you've heard many, many times, you know, that Buddha emphasizes the lawfulness. And we talked about this when we were doing the Eightfold Path around right view. The mundane, the initial right view is just the realization it's a lawful universe. So craving dukkha, suffering, it has to have a lawful cause. So we want to talk about like, how does my mind get tight, feel burdened? How does that come to be? What is that cause? And the Buddha gives us a pointing out. Attachment to desire. Okay, where do I justify attachment to desire? So I'll leave us with this sutta. The Buddha is very explicit. Here it is. This is in The Wings to Awakening, the book by Ajahn in the section on the second and third truths. So the is talking about, talking with someone. It would be good, Lord, Venerable One, if the Blessed One would teach me the origin and ending of stress. That's a good question to ask a wise person. And the Buddha said, if I were to teach you the origin and ending of stress with reference to the past or reference to the future, you might be doubtful and perplexed. So I'm going to instead teach you, I'm just paraphrasing, the origin and the ending of stress right here in the present moment. As you say, Venerable One, and then the Buddha says, now what do you think? Are there people in this town who, if they were murdered or imprisoned or fined or censored, would cause you sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, despair? Yes, right? So we can just do this thought experience on our own. Yeah, there are people in this town that if something terrible happened to them, it would really hurt, right? Now, what is the cause? What is the reason why the murder of some of those a uh, some would cause you sorrow, and the murder of others would cause you no sorrow? So he asked. After that, I forgot to to read. Are there people in this town, right, that if they got killed, like people do all the time, and you you and I hear it. Whenever we read the paper or listen to the news, we hear about the latest murder and maybe something happens, but it's not probably a lot of lamentation, sorrow, and distress some of those people. And certainly, you know, we hear about all kinds of things going on around the world. We're just, you know, 100 people here, 30 people there, one person over here. So why, so the Buddha asks this person right here, in the moment, right now, because this is happening to us all the time, Why is it that some people, some, cause us suffering and some don't? He says, the student says, "Those whose murder would cause me sorrow are those." For whom I feel desire and passion. Those whose murder would cause me no sorrow are those who I feel, for whom I feel no desire or passion. The Buddha says, now from what you have realized, attained, plunged into right now in the present without regard to time, you may draw an inference with regard to the past and future. Whatever stress in arising arose for me in the past, all of it had desire as its root had desire as its cause. And here, just to be consistent with what I'd say earlier, I would add the phrase, instead of that word being translated as desire, I'd I'd make it attached to desire or identified with desire. All of it had attachment to desire as its root, had attachment to desire as its cause. Thus, desire is the cause. Attachment to desire is the cause for stress. And whatever stress in arising will arise for me in the future, all of it will have attachment to desire as its root, will have attachment to desire as its cause. Thus, attachment to desire is the cause of stress. Now, we may not understand, be able to picture or sense out what that would, that non-attachment to desire would be, but uh, we should Get that sense because some things bother us and some things don't bother us. Somebody could have a big dent in the car that wasn't there when you came. That wouldn't bother me. A big dent in my car bothers me. And it sounds so, well, yeah, of course. But it's just sort of interesting to look at it closely. Like what's on the inside circle? What's on the outside? I remember uh, one of my first courses in college. This is famous professor, um, and he—oh boy—we had a great title, but it was about deviant behavior and looking at like how society defines deviant behavior, and uh, and it's. You know, the basic principle, I'm assuming it still is, is like there's a circle. Everybody, each of us, we have a circle. And there are those people, behaviors that are on the inside and those people and behaviors that are on the outside. And it's, in a sense, arbitrary but real. And those on the outside, we don't care about. And those on the inside, we care about. And the difference is attachment, identification. So it seems like it would be very cold to not have that circle of who's on the inside and who's on the outside. You know, we talk a lot about, we idealize this sort of universal love, experience of unity, but it means no tribe, no You know, and like uh, talking about Michelle uh, moving in the direction of full ordination and really developing the renunciate life, it's interesting how, like, in that, and of course, we're not exempt as lay people, but like how we relate to our lovers, our family, our parents, our former cats. Michelle did not visit her cats. Some of you remember. Before going out to the monastery last April, May, she was really looking hard for someone to take her two or three cats? Two cats. And uh, and so like, how do we relate to everyone, every being as equal in terms of love? This doesn't mean we don't know. Of course, we're going to know some people more than others. Of course, some people are going to evoke emotions that other people don't. But everybody is a living being. Everybody is worthy of love, right? And it's just interesting how, oh, you know, I see my good friend over there. And it's different. You know, we look around the room and we have different feelings. And we justify it. So that's the unknowing part. Of course, it makes sense that we have different feelings because we have different experiences. But it's this not understanding, not understanding what the mind is doing and understanding that everybody here is a living being. They want to be happy just like we do. They want to avoid suffering just like we do. So when you share in your small group about your experience of attachment and how wherever there's attachment to desire, there's suffering and wherever there's not attachment to desire, there's No suffering of attachment there. It would be interesting to sort of unpack together in your small groups that experience and how the mind holds to it or feels dependent on it. can't imagine what that non-attachment might be like. So feel free to sort of reflect on that right now as we begin uh, to figure out